0: So today, I'm pleased to be joined by Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who is a professor of education, psychology, and neuroscience at the University of Southern California. She studies the psychological and neurobiological development of emotion and self-awareness and connections to social, cognitive, and moral development in educational settings. She uses cross-cultural, interdisciplinary studies of narratives and feelings to uncover experience-dependent neural mechanisms contributing to identity, intrinsic motivation, deep learning, and generative, creative, and abstract thought. Her work has a special focus on adolescents from low SES communities, and she involves youth from these communities as junior scientists in her work. She has received numerous awards for her research and for her impact on education and society, among them an honor coin from the U.S. Army, a commendation from the County of Los Angeles, a Cazzarelli Prize from the Proceedings of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences Editorial Board, and Early Career Achievement Awards from the American Educational Research Association, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the Association of Psychological Science, the International Mind, Brain, and Education Society, and the Federation of Associations in Behavioral and Brain Sciences Foundation. Today, we'll be discussing her 2019 article in Educational Psychologist entitled, Nurturing Nature, How Brain Development is Inherently Social and Emotional, and What This Means for Education, which she wrote with Linda Darling Hammond and Christina Krohn. Mary Helen, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: So, this was a, a wonderful article that was part of a, a special issue on social and emotional learning. Can you give us just a brief summary of the main ideas in your article?
1: Our purpose in writing this article was to really start to make people clear on how what we're learning in biology, in genetics, in neuroscience is all converging on a common understanding of the importance of sociality and emotional experience in growing the human mind and brain, and in promoting health, both psychological and physical. I think we're coming to appreciate now more than ever, our deep, deep sociality as a species. And I think that has implications for the way in which we conduct educational research and understand educational phenomena, including cognitive, traditionally considered cognitive phenomena.
0: So one of the things that you're talking about that I think is really important is, is there was this kind of Cartesian split, right? There was this idea that there was the mind and then there was the heart and those two things were separate and they got in each other's way. And what your article does a really great job of doing is showing how actually both those things are intimately intertwined, cognition, emotion, et cetera, and they're needed for education. Is that a good way of thinking about it?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I actually don't think about cognition, emotion, and sociality, and culture as being separate things in a person. They're all dimensions of one's whole person. And so though we can study cognitive processes or we can study emotional processes or we can study cultural effects or social processing as a a domain of processing, in reality, we're always just holding the other domains relatively constant so that we can look at that piece moving. Right? So when we're studying cognition, we're actually studying cognition in a cultural context, in a social context, in a way in which person has lived their life all to that point and has set up cognitive mechanisms in particular ways, given the current emotional context that they're in. We're trying to sort of hold those other moving dynamic parts as steady as possible so that we can focus our lens on the cognitive piece, but in no way... Can we think of the cognition as happening independently of those other pieces? And I think that has implications for the way in which we think about and conduct experimental studies and observational studies, where traditionally in educational psychology, we've often tried to understand how emotion, quote, impacts cognition. I don't think of it that way. I really think of how is thinking unfolding and what are the emotional dimensions of that process? What are the cognitive dimensions of that process? if we want to divide it up that way. But we can also carve it into different kinds of pieces, which is also a focus of the article. We don't necessarily need to only carve thinking into cognitive, emotional, and social, and cultural dimensions. We can start to carve it in other kinds of chunks that I think may reveal new kinds of insights that have been under our nose all this time, but that we have not been particularly focused on because our paradigm, our theoretical paradigm, is limiting what we're able to see.
0: And that sounds like a real call to action to the field, to think differently about, as you said, how we're we're cutting things up. And I'm imagining how those categories of cognition, emotion, sociality, culture, you can cut up a phenomenon that way, or you could cut across them in a different way.
1: That's right. So I make an argument that What if we were to cut across, and people have done this, right? You know, anthropologists do this, for example, uh, and other kinds of developmental studies have done this to a degree, especially historically. But what if we were to cut across educational phenomena and look instead at people situated in context dynamically acting in ways that reflect all of those dimensions, cognitive, emotional, social, cultural, individual variability, developmental variability, instead of carving them up into these different dimensions, instead looked at the whole person in a particular context and produced a kind of dynamic understanding and analysis of how things are unfolding within that context. That would give us new ways of thinking about how people learn and the relationship between learning and development in particular, which I think has been really under attended to in educational psychology.
0: I agree with you. And in your article, you talk about culturally situated phenomena. And it sounds like that's what you're describing here, that if we take that kind of lens, we would a priori think about different things that we would want to investigate in any particular context.
1: Yeah, that's right. So what I'm advocating is that we could get new insights by thinking about how a person's engagement in a particular context, their interactions, the ways in which they're growing and changing and adapting in that moment, reflect both the developmental affordances that they've brought with them to that point. And this idea has been big in, the, in other kinds of educational literature, but not so much in educational psychology, the idea that learners come with a kind of font of knowledge that they bring from their previous experience and i would really broaden that font of knowledge to also reflect biological and other kinds of growth that that person has undergone given the life that they've lived to that point and the ways in which the learning experience quote unquote the engagement in a particular context with all its dimensionality is in turn promoting the future development of the person and the changing and and advancing of their capacities over time so it's a much more whole child whole learner, dynamic approach, systems-level approach to understanding the learning process.
0: Right. And I, I suspect it is particularly refreshing for people to hear some of that coming from someone who does neuropsychological and neurobiological work. And it does, I think for me, really illustrate how all those different levels of analysis and all those different perspectives on learners in context are valuable. And they, and they do tell us something about the way people develop and learn and how to help them do those things more successfully. So I suspect there are lots of people out there kind of cheering to hear such a sophisticated and broad-based approach to what you're doing. And you've written quite eloquently in other work about how learning is intrinsically emotional and social and that it even when someone is alone, there are social aspects to learning. You know, even when emotions may not appear particularly salient, emotion is still a key aspect of learning. It sounds like what you're doing in this particular article is, and, and what you did do in this article really well, is illustrate how that could be conceptualized to advance the field in new ways in terms of its research and even its theories about development and learning.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the neuroscience is unequivocal now in demonstrating that there are really no functional networks in the brain that are uniquely processing one of these dimensions of the person cognitive, emotional, cultural. Social. Mm-hmm. We use our whole brain with all of its affordances to do all of these things in various dynamic ways. And these networks are impacting each other based on the patterns of use and the patterns of valuation that that person has lived up to that point. And this is why relationships and emotional experiences, and I mean that in a kind of active sense, the, the subjective sense that a person is constructing awareness that their actions and thoughts are real, that they are real, that construction process appears to be actively growing the brain into a set of patterns that engage with the world in particular ways over time. And if we can understand those better, we can both leverage those patterns over time so that we're utilizing and taking advantage of a person's experiences and past history in the service of their future learning and, and, and productivity. And we can also start to gain a much more nuanced view about the ways in which a person's own individual growth is impacted by their quote unquote opportunities in school to learn and think in particular ways.
0: So, Mary Helen, these different networks, you talk about three different networks in your article. It's a really different and better way of thinking about the brain than the kind of classic trope of left brain, right brain, which always drives me crazy. You talk about the executive control network, the default mode network, and the salience network. Uh, I found that really helpful. Can you just explain a little bit about those networks and what they do and how they work together?
1: Yeah, sure. So those three networks are now the subject of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of neuroscience papers and cognitive neuroscience papers in particular with humans and with other animals. And I was really struck by the fact that while neuroscientists are busy organizing the mind into these networks, trying to understand how our new dynamic tools for functional analysis of the brain are leading us to understand better about the dynamic sort of interplay between different regions in the brain. And yet, in education, that work was really not coming to the fore. So I decided to try to conceptualize what these networks are and do for the educational community. And what you could say is that thinking, in the big sense in which we mean it in education, really seems to be heavily dependent on three major networks, right? And each of these is like a fractal. There's subcomponents of each one. There's different dimensions of each one. There are coactivated and deactivated in these complex patterns that we're only starting to understand. So it's not as simple as three, but at the big picture view, we can kind of think about the mind as being reliant on three big networks. One of these networks is one that we had discovered and is very important for the uh, quote unquote experience of emotion. We had discovered this really early on In 2009, in our first paper in which we asked people to react to complex, emotional, true stories, almost like mini documentaries of real people's experiences in the world, and we uh, had them do this first in a qualitative interview, and then we moved them into the MRI scanner, and we were recording psychophysiological changes on their body, things like their EKG, their galvanic skin response, which is like microscopic sweating on the bottoms of their feet, and the ways in which their sort of autonomic arousal is playing out dynamically across the session and we're looking at their neural activity changes. More more specifically, we're looking at the way the blood is flowing around their brain and the dynamic shifts in that across time, which are metrics for understanding the crosstalk and the sort of oxygen use and activation increases and decreases across the brain across time. And then we're also asking people to report to us in real time what they're experiencing. And by doing that, we were able to start to pull out neural regions or platforms of processing that seemed to be really pivotal and important for the experience of emotion. And I mean that for in a really constructive sense, for a person to become consciously aware of what they're thinking and feeling, what, for them to, quote-unquote, build meaning about it. And these findings that we first described in 2009, they were the ones that, that won the Casarelli Prize, have now been replicated and extended and just rediscovered across many, many kinds of platforms across many labs in the world. What's important to understand about these networks is that each one of them is co-opting or repurposing regions of the brain that also have what you might call an evolutionary day job that is involved in controlling some aspect of physiological survival and functioning, what you might call homeostatic or allostatic regulation. So it's not like any of the regions in any of these networks are only about thinking. They all also are involved at the same time in monitoring and managing some aspect of bodily physiological sensation, regulation, or behavior. And because of that, we get new insights into the nature of human cognition by kind of mapping the different regions that are being involved in aspects of cognition and emotion and thinking with those same regions, kind of day jobs, so to speak, in monitoring and managing the body physiology and behavior and sensation. Mm -hmm. So the regions of the brain that are pivotal for the quote unquote salience network and also are... The platforms for, quote unquote, experiencing, consciously experiencing emotion turn out to also be the regions of the brain that we've known since the 1950s are involved in somatosensation for the viscera and guts. So basically, these are regions that allow you to feel what's happening in your internal core body. The way in which your lunch is being digested, whether or not your heart's pounding fast, whether you're sweating or if you get goosebumps, those kinds of autonomic responding that reflect internal mechanisms inside the person are also being mapped on these regions. And some of these regions are involved in direct visceral somatosensation, like feeling your heartbeat thumping when you run up the stairs or feeling that your lunch doesn't agree with you, right? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're also involved in what you might call autonomic modulation. So when you go, oh, I messed up or, oh, I forgot something or, whoa, what's that thing in front of me? I almost bumped into. Right. That kind of like, whoa, watch out sort of response that is at once cognitive. Right. You have to recognize something in the environment and and simulate some possible future from that and is autonomic. Right. You're readying your own physiological state for action of some characteristic kind that region turns out to be, in a network sense, a kind of pivotal switching point for attention, engagement, and kind of valuing in cognition and thinking. So it's at once affective and cognitive. You can sort of start to see now why those two things are uh, silly to be pulled apart. They're not apart in the mind or the brain. And that switching station can drive people into two main modes of thinking, right? And I use the word thinking because I don't want to say cognition or emotion. They're both, and thinking kind of encompasses both of that, thinking slash feeling. One of those modes is heavily managed by the so-called central executive network. These are networks that are involved in modulating and regulating and planning and perceiving actions, So these are regions that are involved in navigating through the world, in suddenly switching course when you're going one direction and then you need to suddenly change because suddenly there's an obstacle in your way. The ability to attend in the traditional sense, listen to what's going on in the world and load up into working memory, the stuff that seems relevant, right? So then you see the seeming relevant is the salience network, right? So these two networks are deeply intertwined with one another. So you've got this kind of task-oriented network that allows you to dig in and pay attention and get work done in the moment. And then there's another whole kind of mode of the brain that's supported by a whole set of regions that when they coactivate are referred to as the quote-unquote default mode network. And they were called this early on by uh, Marcus Raichel and his colleagues who decided to study what would happen in neuroimaging experiments, basically, if you asked people, rather than to complete some kind of task or respond to something in the scanner, if they would just relax and rest and sort of let their minds wander and not engage in some sort of effortful task-oriented thought. And paradoxically, what happened was these massive activations – In core regions of the brain that we know are tracking with, and now we're segueing into what's the embodied day job of these regions, they're tracking with consciousness. So they're deeply intertwined with subcortical regions, regions below the cortex, that are involved in managing sleep-wake cycles, alertness, and physiological regulatory capacity for the internal body. What we found, and now hundreds of studies have found, is that... Though these regions are activated when people are quote-unquote awake and resting, what that really reflects is a kind of internally oriented narrative constructive thought, what I like to call thought that reflects something other than the real physical here and now. So this is the network that seems to be instrumental for, for example, forming and recalling and organizing long-term episodic memory. So memories for things that have happened, ways that things played out, not so much memories for facts, but memories for story. It's Mm. very important in the awareness of self. So the ability to actually think about your own self as a psychological entity, which of course is cognitive and emotional at once, right? It's very important for the ability to build conceptual understanding to, quote-unquote, think outside the box, right, to think of things that don't already exist in the world, right? So being innovative, being creative. And it's also very important for being able to imagine the future or think about the past and learn from uh, what's happened in the past. So all of these kind of simulatory capacities seem to rest heavily in a whole, you know, depending on what kinds of simulations are involved, seem to rest heavily on a whole network of regions whose activity is by necessity attenuated and decoupled when the executive control network is focusing a person on the world. So you've got a kind of three-way pivot. If you could sort of think of a seesaw where the pivot of the seesaw is the salience network. How much does this matter to me? how is this re- impacting my autonomic needs right now? How does it reflect my autonomic regulation right now or my arousal state right now? What do I quote unquote care about? What's worth attending to what's relevant and depending on the processing in that network, that network sort of shifts the brain into a state of kind of outward attentiveness and task focus orientation or it trades off and kind of shifts the seesaw the other direction into this internally focused, what you might call meaning making network, this reflective capability, this ability to sense your own self, construct a story about who you are, what you believe in, what you remember, what possible futures could be. And so in understanding the dynamic mind as being sort of ensconced in or embodied or empowered by the trade-off dynamically across time of these different modes of neural activity, if you will, we get a new appreciation for what we mean when we say whole person, that cognition and emotion and culture and sociality are intimately integrated in the brain. They are not separate dimensions of brain function. They're separate domains of processing in the world, maybe, but inside the person, they are all completely integrated, and so they're impacting one another dynamically in real time. So the patterns of processing that a person engages in reflect the past experiences that they have had in the real social, physical world and reflect the patterns of meaning-making and thinking that they have habitually called up over and over again in their mind in relation to those real world patterns of functioning. And so you get the origins of cultural shaping of the mind and brain. And then that brain that is sort of habitually used to and inclined toward particular modes of processing and ways of organizing information and self then is looking out into the world according to what matters to that person, right, by the salience network steering it, and then engaging with information gathering, with top-down expectations being imposed on the world, with prediction capacities, in all of this dynamic space that a person is learning and that that learning is shaping the future propensities for thinking, which we call development. And then if you add to that, the sort of biological affordances of particular developmental periods, particularly ones around physical growth of the structures and big hormonal fluctuations, right? So we see big periods of dynamic change and sensitivity to experience in the brain in these networks around the time periods that you might expect. Early childhood is a big one because of the immense physical growth and organization that's going on. Adolescence is a very big one that we're starting to really come to appreciate now that we have new neuroimaging capacities to actually capture these dynamic networks in real time. We realize that though the brain is not really getting much bigger across adolescence, in fact, it's kind of getting a little bit smaller, what's happening is a major reworking and shifting of the relative interconnectivity and crosstalk of these networks dynamically across time as kids are building meaning. And then evidence from our lab now suggests that the ways in which kids are building meaning is shaping those brain networks dynamically, predictively over time. So we can actually tell based on how kids are talking about things that are meaningful to them, how their brain networks connectivity is going to change in the subsequent two years. And that, in turn, is allowing us to predict young adult outcomes uh, about self-actualization, values, how satisfied a person is with their life, how well they're doing in school and work. So we have what amounts to a really powerful new way of thinking about the brain, which is that it's this dynamic connectivity that is conjured by the individual through their own thinking, feeling, and meaning-making that is driving their organization of their brain over time and enabling them in turn to reengage with the world. And when we think about it that way, it really begs us to rethink some of the compartmentalized ways in ed psychology that we in the past have studied causal chains of emotion to cognition, cognition to emotion, cognition isolated, emotion isolated, sociality is a factor that then, you know, impinges upon the other two, the cognition and the emotion. Instead, we really need to think about the dynamic interplay of these as integrated, not separate processes. They're different dimensions of the mind, but they are not different things in the brain.
0: That's fascinating and, and really helpful.
1: This has another really important implication in that what we're learning about the brain development is that these networks are interdependent on one another. So the development of one network, a person's ability to, for example, become attentive to the world quickly, is reflecting certain kinds of experiences. Sometimes those experiences are maladaptive. Kids in unsafe situations are learning that they really need to maintain their outward vigilance and that trains up their brain to expect dangerous things in the world. And we can see now how that kind of experience would shape not just the person's vigilance and salience detection, so to speak, but also the way in which that network is, is dynamically toggling to outward attention or inward reflection. So a kid's ability to attend to the world in the sense that we mean it in education, to listen to their teacher, to absorb instructions, to figure out what's going on, to focus on their work in a, in a regulated way, is intimately dependent upon their ability to also build internal reflection in the default mode network and the way in which their salience network has been tuned over time based on their social experience. And so what it helps us also understand is that kids' outward attention, their inward reflection and sense of self, and their emotional safety and feelings of sort of relevance and belonging are intimately intertwined in the way in which these networks develop and the way in which they dynamically shift to enable modes of thinking. So we really start to appreciate how a kid's whole experience is setting them up to be able to think in particular ways, even in academic contexts. the interdependence of the whole child experience with the quote unquote academic learning.
0: And that's really helpful because, you know, as you described it, we have these three networks and how they activate one another and how we shift among them can be influenced by the cultural situated nature of our development over time and that the predominance or prevalence of those networks and how they are enacted can change based upon that. And that's that's really helpful.
1: And it changes throughout the lifespan is the evidence. It, it's especially plastic during particular developmental periods, which are, as I mentioned, the ones that are associated with a lot of hormonal changes or physical growth, like early childhood across adolescence. But also uh, evidence suggests other periods of huge hormonal adjustment, like the transition to parenting is also a period of immense plasticity in the brain. And what's also important for educators to understand is that these time periods of plasticity are both windows of opportunity for education to help kids and young adults rework these networks for new capacity building, but they also have a downside, which is that these are periods of immense vulnerability. These are periods in which a person's experience and growth is especially dependent upon the cultural, social, emotional, and cognitive context as they perceive it. And so these are periods which deserve special attention and education.
0: And that's a really critical point. You know, as an aside, I'll say that I I certainly felt very vulnerable in my transition to parenthood. So it doesn't surprise me that you said that. Um, (laughs) You talk in the paper about how there are lots of positive things that can happen with adults and in communities to help children continue along a positive social-emotional learning trajectory. But there's also some real problematic ones, as you mentioned, things like toxic stress and stereotype threat, discrimination, opportunity, and resource gaps. And it sounds like we need to do a better job of thinking about how those things can shape the way people respond, not just in the moment, but throughout their development.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we know that people's cognition, emotion, you know, whatever dimension of thinking people have been focused on in a particular study are dependent upon context. We know that, for example, a person's quote-unquote cognitive ability is impacted, either bolstered or lessened by their own subjective experience of the meaning of that context, right? This is the reason why things like stereotype threat and lack of belonging uh, or identity incongruence are such powerful impactors of quote-unquote cognitive ability in the moment. And by appreciating the cumulative nature and the sort of habitual pattern like driving of the growth of these networks, I think as a field, we can start to really think in new ways potentially about how a person's own affordances are adaptations. Their brain development represents the ways in which they have actively adapted to function what they would consider optimally in a certain set of circumstances, which Mm -hmm. does two things. Mm -hmm. It gives us a new appreciation into the variation that kids bring to school based on the kinds of lives they have outside of schools. And it also, and I think this is the key thing, helps us to overcome the kind of traditional deficit perspective that's been present in the field, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. we focus on kids who do well on the tasks that education has decided a priori we value at the expense, potentially, of thinking about what are the strengths, what are the adaptations, what are the possible affordances that kids who do these tasks, engage with these tasks differently, may bring to those tasks. So it really dismantles the fundamental underlying assumption that certain ways of doing things are better than other ways of doing things. And we start to instead think about better, quote unquote, as being better, in a particular cultural context. Mm -hmm. And then we can think in turn about, well, so how do we not just change the learner and put the onus on the learner to match our expectations as a system, but how do we enrich or fundamentally rework or re-envision the system of education so that it supports kids building the kinds of habits and propensities of mind that. We value as a society, and that set them up to be productive, happy, and well in the cultural context in which we live now.
0: Mm. That's incredibly important. Uh, so it's, it does really sound like you're arguing for a very culturally situated idea of resilience. For example, resilience isn't just persisting through particular challenges, but some kids that may have been labeled from a deficit perspective actually were incredibly resilient given the circumstances and the cultures in which they found themselves. Absolutely. Um, regardless of you know their their behavior in the moment might be labeled a particular way, but it could be that they they're incredibly resilient to have gotten to that point. That's
1: right. And I think it really I mean, and I'm not the first person to have said any of this, but I think it really also speaks to, you know, the labeling of behaviors as being a two sided process. Behaviors happen in context. So what is it about our context as a school, as a classroom that is precipitating this person engaging in these ways, which may be maladaptive in this context, but are adaptive in other ways? And we need to start thinking about how do we design experiences for young people and for teachers for that matter, they're humans too, that will facilitate them engaging in ways that will be more productive in the ways that we value as a society over time. Mm -hmm. Rather than thinking about fixing broken people, we can think about what's the responsibility of the system? How can we change the way the system's organized so that it facilitates people fixing themselves?
0: That's a wonderful way of putting it. I I really like that. And I know that in elementary schools, social and emotional learning and the ideas behind that are a little more common. Um, But you've you've argued in the paper and elsewhere that our current approaches to teaching and learning in middle school and high school, they're not really developmentally aligned with adolescents' needs and with what you're talking about in terms of helping people better adapt to and thrive in environments. And so what would developmentally appropriate middle school and high school teaching and learning look like, given your perspective?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I I think especially starting with little children like preschool, you know, we know how to do preschool well because it's absolutely impossible if you don't engage with the emotions, the social (laughs) demeanor, right? The full experience of the child that you're going to learn quote unquote anything academic or scholarly in a preschool context. So it's kind of in your face in the sense that we can't pretend like the emotionality and the sociality and the experience of the person isn't dependent also on the context. But by the time we get to older kids, older kids are better able to compensate for the weaknesses and bad design of the system, so to speak, although not all of them, right? So in that sense, this is where my, one of my mentors, David Rose, uh, who was the inventor of UDL, you know, used to call these kids who get into trouble in middle and high school, the quote, canaries in the mine. When they can't manage in our educational settings, it tells us there's something wrong with the design of our educational setting, not something wrong with the kid. Right. And so if you think about what our biological and cultural and social growth is expecting around the transition into adolescence and the trajectory across adolescence into young adulthood, what kind of input are our genes expecting? They're expecting to be triggered and turned on and turned off by patterns of culturally situated engagement in relationships. And they're expecting that emotional experiences as the person subjectively constructs them will be the pivotal sort of driving, organizing force around what matters, what feels relevant, what I bother thinking about, what doesn't matter, what isn't close to me, what isn't worth thinking about. And if you think about that subjective experience of the person as the ground zero for brain development, which we're finding out now via genetic and epigenetic studies that we outline in the the paper, it seems to be, then we really need to take seriously what are the subjectively perceived experiences of our middle and high school children in the institutional settings, which we designed for them. And Mm -hmm. I would argue, and many other people I think would agree, right? I'm not the first person to have said this either, that you could hardly think of a less socially, emotionally engaged, relationship-focused, developmentally appropriate design for learning experiences than our traditional didactic model of middle Mm -hmm. and high school. (laughs) Yeah. So. There are models of high schools that are really trying to engage with the experience of the person and enable people to fully sort of self-actualize as scholars. For example, there are some schools within the network of uh, the Consortium of Performance-Based Assessment Schools in New York that do this exceptionally well, and they have amazing success with young people. When you watch the videos of their students explaining their work in their graduation panels where they're giving presentations formally of months of work in a math project or months of work in a history project and explaining what they learned and how they experienced learning. It's obvious that these kids are deeply connected to what they're doing and that they feel like what they're doing is being driven by them, enabled by the system But driven by them. And that is an immensely powerful way to grow the person. And we're also finding the person's brain. Why does it matter to grow the person's brain? Because it's the brain they take away with them into the future that's (laughs) organized in particular ways to help them deal with new challenges that come along. So I think we need to really fundamentally rethink what counts as learning in adolescence. Uh, What counts as as experiences that will really support optimal growth and development? Like, let's forget learning for a minute. Let's think about growth and development of the person, including, quote-unquote, cognitive capacities of the person, and then retro-design our educational opportunities to support that. And when you think that way, all of a sudden, apprenticeship models, project-based models, interest-driven models... Opportunities to specialize and then to switch specializations according to Mm -hmm. interests that really Mm -hmm. motivate kids and encourage them with feedback and with intensive adult support by people who know them well and who care about them to think in iterative, reflective ways that help them build these networks, we think, by shifting them strategically into kind of task-oriented, dig-in-and-go sort of mode, but also allowing them the space, empowering them with opportunities to notice why their work matters, to subjectively experience that powerful sense of relevance that they construct, and then to shift iteratively into this more reflective place where you tell yourself a story about why this matters, what the possibilities are, how this reflects what you've learned in the past, how this helps you make predictions about what's possible in the future. And out of that comes things like curiosity, creativity, hopefulness, purpose, right? All of these really great things that we know are important, intrinsic motivation, come out of this dynamic shifting between task orientation and internal reflection and meaning making. And the pivot is the person's own subjective sense of relevance. So another implication, which we're just now empirically testing, right? This is just an idea I've got. It's a hypothesis I've got. So I'll, I'll, I'll so to speak, pre-register it here in this podcast, let people know <laughs> I was thinking this, and then we'll see if the work comes out. But what we're seeing is that as kids move themselves from big problems to little instrumental tasks that are important because they help them to have a window into the big problem, that pivot process seems to generate within the kid a subjective sense of personal relevance. So Mm. we're just writing a piece right now that's going to come out in Ed Leadership where we describe kids' actual quotes from their data. Or you can go online and look at some of the examples of young people defending their work at performance-based assessment consortium schools that do this really well. And what you'll notice, or at least what I notice, and I'd be keen to know what other psychologists notice, is that kids talk about, well, I had this huge problem in math. I never had done math before in my life. No one in my family has gone to college. And I, I was given this gigantic problem of zeno's paradox right which is that you know Mm. you could keep Mm -hmm. stepping halfway 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 to the door you both reach the door and don't reach the door how can that be true right and the kid says well i had zeno's paradox and to think about my problem which took me two months to fully do i had to then go back and learn fractions the kid says i had to learn fractions right the kid's Mm. driven to understand fractions because he's got this huge problem and he says and that made me fascinated. And the kid uses the word fascinated, fascinated by finite and infinity. And then the kid says, and this is a pattern we see across these kids. The kid says, it mattered to my life, or I made Mm -hmm. it relevant to my life. And you're thinking, really? Infinity is relevant to your life? But what we're realizing is relevance, quote unquote, is not a feature of the direct applicability of the work to the kid's real-time tasks. Relevance is a subjective experience of meaning of a particular sort constructed by the person. It feels relevant, we think, because there's something potentially in the neurological shifting between task oriented focus, driven intrinsic motivation to study the small thing and to perfect that skill, fractions in this case, and the shift via the salience network platform into these more dynamic states of big storytelling around what does this mean? What's the big picture? What's possible? What happened last? What's going to happen in the future to me? Who am I? What do I feel like in this moment? And we think that potentially the after effect of that pivoting on the salience network is that the salience network kind of constructs this sort of subjective perception or feeling of personal relevance because it's playing out on the autonomic regulatory capacity and digestion capacity and consciousness of your own real physiological self. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so relevance becomes something that's constructed by the person rather than something that we design into the task. Instead, we design the context of the task so that people can construct relevance. And that's a big shift I think, in education, rather than thinking about what do we give kids, thinking about how do we enable kids to build something for themselves? Mm -hmm. And we think it's in that building for, for themselves that they construct intrinsic motivation and meaning and that they actually grow their brains.
0: Well, that, that makes perfect sense. And that was a really beautiful example of, of how to think about middle school and high school education differently. And I really appreciated your example because uh, when I encountered Zeno's paradoxes in college, it broke my brain. So it, it strikes me that we might be thinking about social and emotional learning in a somewhat limited way. Uh, should we be thinking about it differently?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So right now, most of the work on quote unquote social emotional learning focuses on the social and emotional regulatory capacity people build, which usually means their ability to down-regulate inappropriate negative emotion. And maybe in the best scenarios, it also means their ability to up-regulate positive social interactions. And those things are really important. The ability to manage your own stress, to kind of talk yourself down, to engage with other people and collaborate, so to speak, and have social skills, so to speak. Those things are really important. No doubt. We need counseling. We need opportunities for kids to develop these. We need mindfulness in the moment. We need all these kinds of opportunities for kids to really become regulated beings. But that's only a tiny slice. That's only a tiny slice of the ways in which social and emotional learning are actually playing out in the person. And I think what we need is much more empirical attention to the role of sociality, emotion, cultural patterns of thinking in the disciplines themselves. When kids are Mm. thinking about academic work, how do they transform themselves into scholars? How do they transform their social, their emotional experience, what they value, how they engage with patterns of thinking and reflecting and meaning making into modes of working that reflect scholarly dispositions of mind, how do they actually engage their emotional selves in the context of academia? That's, I think, a problem that has been really forefronted by decades and decades of work in psychology. David Perkins' work at Project Zero, for example. But now we really need to get serious, especially at adolescence, about the ways that our disciplinary knowledge is inherently construed as emotionally motivating, socially relevant content for kids and for adolescents in particular. And this doesn't mean making your chemistry directly relevant, right? Like, okay, we're going to study lead in the water because we have lead in our water. That's a great place to start. But we also need to think about how do we help kids extend the kinds of internal narratives of relevance that they can build so that they notice that concepts that seem really abstract, like infinity or like chemical composition of things and how atoms interact with one another in the world and ecology and the universe, right? How did those concepts start to feel like relevant concepts to kids? We need to start attending to that, I think, more systematically. And we need to study that intensively. We really, there's so much we don't understand about the development of intrinsic motivation, interest, curiosity, And how these things connect to scholarly identity and purpose. Uh, And we need to really focus on those things as a field, I think, if we want to understand how social emotional factors in learning actually are playing out in the development of a person and in what they're capable of becoming and thinking about over time.
0: Right, and and as you said, if if we slice that up into cognitive aspects versus emotional aspects versus social versus cultural, we really are missing the big picture, and and that's another point that I think your article brings home really well. The work you're doing is fascinating, and I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about it. I'm gonna encourage our listeners to check out your 2019 article in Educational Psychologist entitled "Nurturing Nature: How Brain Development Is Inherently Social and Emotional" and what this. Means for Education, which you wrote with Linda darling Hammond and Christina Crone, and to really check out that entire special issue on social emotional learning that was edited by Dr. Catherine Wenzel. But Mary Helen, thank you again so much for talking with us today.
1: You're so welcome. And let me just add one more thing we're launching mm-hmm. a new center called CANDLE, no. the Center for Affective Neuroscience Development, Learning, and Education at USC. So tune in and start following us. We'll be posting new resources, new research, and other of our colleagues there. So we hope you'll be part of the conversation.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much, Mary Helen. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.